Please take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. If you do not have a Bible, we do have some white Bibles on the back table there that is our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, we really would love for you to have one. But there's just some white ones on the back there um, that we'd love for you to have. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Matthew uh, know that this chapter that we're going to be beginning today in Matthew 21 really begins what we know to be uh, as the Passion Week. So this morning we'll see the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. So even though there are several chapters to go within the book of Matthew, we're really coming to the end of Jesus' life and ministry. So most of the rest of this book, from chapters 21 to 28, is the last week of Jesus' life before his resurrection. So seven or eight chapters of the whole entire book dedicated to just one week of Jesus' life, from the triumphal entry all the way up until his resurrection. And so obviously... Since Matthew decides to take so much, really about a quarter of the book of Matthew, he takes so much time to write about this last week of Jesus' life, the, the obvious uh, thing we should stand back and realize is this is obviously a very important week. Eight chapters dedicated to just one week of Jesus' life. And so it's my goal to look at these chapters in detail, but also make sure that we don't miss the fact that this is only one week of Jesus' life in these seven or eight Chapters, But let's look at this great passage together. Matthew chapter 21, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought him the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children, they cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Pray with me again. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, for the opportunity to take time and to look at it now. 
And Lord, we pray that as we look at these, these facets, these facts about your Son, that we'll contrast ourselves with them, realize that we are not Him, and submit our lives to Him totally, without hesitation, without reservation. Bring us in submission to your Son, who is the Word. And pray this in His name. Amen. There's something about an entrance that can be pretty spectacular. There's all kinds of entrances, I suppose. You watch different movies, or maybe you've experienced even a real life where uh, your daughter walks down the staircase for her first date or her first dance or whatever, and it's like, that, that's a grand entrance coming down. Or having a three-year-old and just gone to Disneyland, I've learned a few things about princesses, but you, you think of the, the princess coming down, the, the grand staircase going into the ball. There's something about those kinds of entrances. There's, there's other entrances, though, maybe ones that I'm more comfortable with, like when the captain of the ball team uh, rushes out of the tunnel onto the field. One of the great memories I have growing up in Rhode Island is we had the Pawtucket Red Sox, and they had the, the AAA team right under the Red Sox. And one of the greatest memories, I can still feel the sun burning on me, I can still smell the smells, and all of a sudden what would happen before the game began is the Pawtucket Red Sox would jump out of the dugout as John Fogarty's center field would play all throughout the stadium, and they'd rush out onto the field. There's just something about that entrance, the, the team making their entrance onto the field. Entrances are a big deal. They're memorable. They even make a statement. And the entrance that we're going to be looking at this morning is not only memorable and well-known to all of us, but it's also of incredible importance to the life and ministry of Christ. As we walk through this passage, we see that Jesus' great entrance, he goes into Jerusalem. And and throughout this passage, there are different things about Jesus that I I just want to look at. Five different things about him. Five truths that I want us to see about Jesus as he makes this entrance. And then even a few verses beyond that. And the first thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus is the Lord. Okay? Like we've seen over and over again, Jesus is authoritative over absolutely everything. There's nothing that comes within his path that he does not have authority over, that he does not handle. And this situation that he's in regarding the triumphal entry is no different. In fact, you'll notice that Jesus is the one conducting and calling all of the shots. The text says that Jesus sends two of his disciples into a village in order to find a couple of donkeys. Look at verse 2 again to see what he tells them to do. He tells these two disciples, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And so Jesus gives very direct orders to go and to go to this person's house. As far as we can tell, it's a random person. And he wants them to grab a donkey and its cult. And this has to kind of cause us to pause for at least a second, step back and say, what is Jesus doing here? I mean, how is this not breaking one of the Ten Commandments, right? If I went to your house and I took something and I walked away with it, would that not be breaking one of the Ten Commandments? Would that not be stealing? But here, Jesus is telling his disciples to go and to take these two donkeys from this person's house. And I guess you could maybe make the statement, well, Jesus is just going to borrow the donkeys for a little while, and then he's going to send the donkeys back. But even so, I think you'd be a little weirded out by that, right? I mean, which one of you would a couple random people come to your house and they say, hey, the Lord has need of your car. How about you hand me your keys? Which one of you would really say, okay, here's my keys, take my car and go. I mean, none of us would do that sort of thing. 
But you see, what's really going on here is that there's absolutely nothing that ultimately does not belong to the Lord. What the psalmist says in Psalm 50 is true about Jesus. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and that includes the donkeys. As the creator and sustainer, everything belongs to him. So ultimately, these are Jesus' donkeys, and he's sending these guys out to get them. And this is an important application, I think, for all of us to understand. That we've seen over and over within Jesus' teaching, that within the kingdom, money and stuff is not highly regarded. But money and stuff is not prized within the kingdom of God. Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell it all and to take that money and to give it to the poor and then to follow after him. So he doesn't even tell the rich young ruler to sell all of his stuff and to give Jesus or the disciples all of his money and then follow after him. He says, sell it all, give the money to the poor, and then you follow after me. You think of even Zacchaeus, right? He was a tax collector, that wee little man. And what did he do upon following Christ? He disposed of his income. He gave so much of it back to those whom he had ripped off. Or even Matthew, the tax collector, who's writing this passage, certainly gave up incredible financial means in order to follow after Jesus. Jesus teaches over and over about money and stuff. And the point for us to understand is that whatever he blesses us with is never meant for us to fully control or for us to be controlled by, but for him to have total control of. And I really think that we've lost our grip on this. Whatever the Lord requires of you and the resources that he has given to you, those are to be joyfully given back to him when he requests them of you. How privileged we are when when God steps into our lives and he has given us something and, and he has allowed us to steward that item. But then he takes that back and he uses it for himself. So he takes our finances, he takes our time, he takes our spiritual gifts and our talents, and then he uses them for the advancement of his kingdom. That's a a truly tremendous privilege. Every moment of our being and all that we have should fall under the total control of the Lord. What a privilege. You even consider the owner of these donkeys. What a privilege it is for this owner to have his own donkeys be used by the king. And for us, how great of a privilege it is for God to take what he has given to us and to use them for his own purposes. So again, Jesus is directing everything that is going on here. He directs his disciples to get the donkeys and they obey. And what I want you to notice in light of Jesus's own authority here, and particularly as we consider this Passion Week, this week where he will go and be crucified and all of that, what I want you to realize is that Jesus is not a passive participant in this week. Jesus is not passively just receiving all of these things that are just happening to him. He's actually directing it all. He's making sure that all the horrific things that happen to him within this week, he's going to make sure that they actually happen. Everything that Jesus says and does is totally calculated. Everything that happens is because he knows that the Father wants it to happen that way, and so he's going to make sure that it does. This is very important for us to catch. That when all of the bad stuff happens to him during this week, when he is betrayed and when he is condemned and when he is eventually crucified, we need to remember that he is not a, a vulnerable, weak, unsuspecting Jesus who just doesn't have a clue. Instead, we need to remember that he is a strong, powerful, 
yet submissive Christ, submitting himself to what the Father has planned and making sure that all of what his Father has planned comes to pass. All the while knowing, like we looked at last week, all the dreadful things that would certainly come upon him. He was not going into this week uninformed, but knew exactly what was going to happen to him, and he was going to make sure that it happened to him. So don't make that mistake, that Jesus is just a passive participant, but that he is actually the Lord. He is the one actively making sure all of this comes to pass, which brings us to our next point, that Jesus is not only orchestrating these events as the Lord in submission to the Father, but he's being sure to orchestrate these events according to prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Look again at verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples go, they get the donkeys, And little do they probably even know that they're participating in the bringing about of this prophecy. The first line of which is from Isaiah. But the bulk of this is from Zechariah 9 verse 9. The king is coming to you. Right? But how is the king coming to you? This is what Zechariah 9 9 says. He said that he's coming in in a humble way. So he's not coming in, in glory or splendor or magnificence or any of that. But humble. He's He's mounted on a Donkey colt, the foal of a beast of burden. We call this the triumphal entry. But is there anything triumphant about a donkey? I'm guessing nobody here has too much experience with donkeys. Maybe you do, I don't know. But you've all at least seen donkeys down at Windsor Fair year after year after year. And I'm sure they're really nice donkeys. Maybe there's a really good breeding line for donkeys. Or, or maybe they get trophies and they get blue ribbons. And it's like, wow, these are really nice donkeys. But for crying out loud, at the end of the day, it's a donkey, right? They're humble animals. They're beasts of burden. I, I've never once saw somebody at the fair kind of step back and just gasp. Wow, look at that donkey. It's incredible, triumphant, magnificent animal. Nobody says that about donkeys, Some of you maybe have seen the movie Shrek. And the donkey, donkey, wants to be known as a noble steed. But there is nothing noble about a donkey. Yet the most noble person to ever grace this planet rode on one. And not even a full grown one, but a baby, a a colt, a young donkey. This would be God's choice of animal that Jesus would ride on and he would ride on it to fulfill the prophecy of old. That God in the flesh gets on this colt and he rides it into the city of Jerusalem. And so he gets on it, borrows it from that guy, gets on it, he begins riding it into the city of Jerusalem. All the crowds of people begin to to gather around him. They cut down palm branches, which would have been a sign of victory, and they take those palm branches and they put them on the ground in front of the donkey. They take the cloaks off their back. You guys all know this. They carpet the road with their own cloaks. And they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. So Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. But Jesus is also the Son of David, as this crowd calls out to him. As such, 
So Jesus is not coming to them. I want you to notice this as well, that he's not coming to them as the warrior king, son of David. He's coming to them as the shepherd king, son of David. Behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you on a donkey colt. So that humility is being displayed here by the Savior. The imagery is is profoundly clear. That the king is riding into his city. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the son of David that you, Jerusalem, have been waiting for. Again, coming not in the pomp and the splendor and the the magnificence, but in humility. But again, notice what the people are saying. Hosanna. To the son of David. Hosanna could be translated, save, save us. Oh, save son of David. They wanted this son of David to conquest. Like we've mentioned before, the the Romans had control over this region. And so the Jews were constantly having to live their lives subjected to the Roman oppression, if you want to call it that, over them and infiltration of their land. And so as they're crying out for salvation, I don't want you to get to sense that they're bowing to Jesus somehow in, in adoration. Or that they themselves are bowing their hearts and bowing spiritually before Him in regard to their souls and their salvation. But they are crying out for a physical deliverance from physical oppression instead of spiritual deliverance from spiritual oppressions. That is a, a huge thing to grasp when we consider this passage. They're not saying, Hosanna, save us, as you and I would sing this morning in regard to our souls and salvation. They want physical deliverance from physical oppression. They want him to function with the the physical might and the physical power of his forefather David, the great king of Israel, the one who claimed to kill lions and bears who came and attacked the flock of sheep. They wanted Jesus to function as David who cut off uh, the Philistine's head after he had killed him. They wanted him to be like David who would scamper even across the countryside with all of his mighty men and have different victories. Especially as David as king who ruled over the united kingdom of the tribes of Israel. Even as David, who being anointed king over Israel, he defeated the Philistine army overall. And it says in 1 Corinthians 14, David's fame spread throughout every land and the Lord made all the nations fear him. So the hope of the Jews on this day is that Rome would come to stand in fear of their new Messiah as the nations feared his forefather David. They wanted a king that would reign as a king in physical might and physical power. To crush the oppression, to deliver them to freedom, and all of the rest. They wanted him to be like King David, his forefather, the great warrior king with blood on his hands. But you see, David was like, or excuse me, Jesus was like his forefather David. But at this point, not in the way that they wanted him to be like David. Jesus does not function here in a way that mirrors David. As a warrior. Instead we see Jesus mirroring the other side of David. The meek and lowly shepherd boy. Who was the youngest of his father's sons. He mirrored the side of David that would not put his hand against the Lord's anointed Saul. But wanted to fulfill and submit to God's plan. He mirrors the side of David that cared for the crippled son of King Saul. Mephibosheth and cared for him and fed him at his own table. 
He mirrors the side of David that mourned for his son Absalom, who sought out to kill him. Jesus would mourn for those who set out to kill him. And this is the picture of Jesus that we have. This is the son of David whom we worship, the one who comes to Israel not as a warrior king with blood on his hands, but the one who comes to Israel as a humble shepherd king who would spill his blood out for them. So Jesus did not come to spill the blood of others. He came to spill his own blood. What are some of the wonderful things that we've heard him say within this book of Matthew? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, I will not break the bruised reed. I will not quench the smoldering wick. Matthew 9, it says that he's, he's filled with compassion and he looks out on the crowd and he, call, he considers them to be harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In his triumphal entry, although Matthew does not record it, Luke records Jesus weeping over the city that rejected him as their true Messiah, as that shepherd who had come to spill his own blood for them. This is the side of King David that Jesus is mirroring so beautifully. The shepherd king who would weep and mourn and spill his blood for the people. But notice that although Jesus would not overthrow the Romans, we see his heart to overthrow sin. Our text has displayed for us that Jesus is Lord. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the true son of David. But notice also that Jesus is zealous for the house of God. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I side with those who believe this is actually the second time that Jesus goes into the temple and clears these kinds of people out. We see the first recorded in John and then the second here right now in chapter 21. And there is certainly a place for buying and selling things, specifically animals. For the sacrifices, much of which have been sold on this day in order to sacrifice them right here in the temple. So it's extremely convenient for them. But this is not the place to be selling animals, to be selling anything. This is a place, this is the temple for the worship of God. As you know, this is the time of Passover. And so the whole city would have swelled with hundreds and thousands of more people. And so these people who were selling within the temple were making an absolute killing this time of year because of all of the travelers that had come to the city and would not have brought their own animals. They would simply buy one once they got there. So they were making incredible profits right here in the temple. And it's certainly not a perfect comparison. And and don't get me wrong here. I'm not comparing the church building to the temple. They're not the same thing. But imagine if you came to worship this morning and you had readied your heart You had confessed your sin before God and you were ready to come into the presence of the Lord for worship. And you walk into the building and our greeter Dave is in the back hollering out, bulletins, get your bulletins. And he's back there just selling bulletins, right? $3 for a bulletin. And maybe we're taking communion that morning and we charge you $5 each to take communion. And maybe we have a baptism and since I have to get wet too, charge you $25 for a baptism. And what we've done is we've taken the worship of God and we have, have turned it into a time of personal profit, a time for personal gain, gaining for ourselves instead of gaining for God. 
And I, I would hope that, some, that God would send somebody into this building and drive out all of those who were seeking some sort of personal profit, those who were selling and making money on the backs of the people. And so Jesus rushes through this temple and he literally drives out those who are buying and selling within this temple, overturning tables. He's causing an absolute just havoc event. And I love this. This is not the equivalent of your child throwing a tantrum because he doesn't get his way. This is the Son of God with with righteous anger flowing through him, driving him to drive these unrepentant sinners from this place of holiness. And upon doing this, he quotes scripture. When I get get angry, maybe even righteously angry, I'm not really in a scripture-quoting mood. But Jesus drives these people out. And then he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of thieves. Jesus is zealous for God's house. But notice finally with me. Jesus is worthy of praise. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Jesus is certainly worthy of praise that was being given to him by those within the city in his triumphal entry. He's worthy of the praise from those who in 14, the blind and the lame, would have certainly praised him after he healed them. And he's worthy of the praise of these children who are calling out to him and saying, Hosanna. To the son of David. Have you never read. He says to them. These these chief priests. These scribes. These ones who not only had it read. They read it many times. But would have so much of the law of God. And the Old Testament memorized. And Jesus says. Have you never read. Out of the mouths of infants. And nursing babies. You have prepared praise. And how sweet it is. To hear children sing. And speak praises to Jesus. Why do we want those noisy kids in here with us? Because it's a beautiful thing. Have not, has not even Jesus said here that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Why should we not have them among us as we praise his name together? I love hearing them. And I hope that you at home lead your children in the praise of God because Jesus is worthy of their praise. So you need to to teach them about him. Tell them about his work on the cross. Teach them all his marvelous deeds so that they may praise him. That they may call out as you have to him in salvation. How horrific would it be for our children to hear the wonderful deeds of Christ. And like the chief priests and scribes who knew the word quite well. Become indignant. And this happens so often. Where our children do grow indignant to the truths of Christ. They hear about it. They hear about what he did on the cross. But they stand back not in praise. But as indignant people. The text says the chief priests and scribes were doing just that. They could not mutter a word of praise to Jesus. Yet the children let it ring. These are five truly life changing truths about our King. Where is your heart in relation to Christ? 
Have you submitted to his lordship? Have you bent the knee? and Have you committed your allegiance to him alone? If you don't know Jesus, today is that day to bow the knee before him, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The truth is that one day every single knee is going to bow, as Paul says in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't do it now, you will do it then. Jesus is the Lord. Are you living under his authority Second, we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He certainly fulfilled the prophecy that he would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. But we do have the word of the Lord that has declared again that Jesus is going to come a second time into this earth. And he is not going to be riding a donkey, but he's actually going to be riding a white horse, a truly noble steed. And this time he will overthrow all wickedness. And he is also the son of David. It's mirroring that beautiful, humble side of his forefather. The side that reflects being a man of God's own heart. The loving shepherd of his flock who would certainly give his life for them. The one who would come and not spill the blood of others, but spill his own blood. And he is zealous for the temple. He is zealous for the temple of the living God. And I think that we can now certainly translate that that zeal over to how we consider our own lives. Just as Jesus was concerned for the holiness and distinctiveness of the temple, he is concerned about your holiness and your distinctiveness as a living stone, as part of the temple of God, as part of that royal priesthood. And finally, just as he was worthy of praise, the praise of the children, he is worthy of all of our praise here this morning. So may God help us to live in submission to these great truths that we've seen of Christ. Lord, we... Thank you for this opportunity and again, sitting under your word and hearing it read and preached. God, we pray that these truths will change us, that we will live in subjection to you as our Lord. Understanding that you yourself submitted yourself to your father and with the fulfillment of the prophecy. You're the son of David, zealous for the house of God and worthy of all praise. We pray, Father, that we will live in light of these truths. Change us. Make us more like your great son. In his name, amen.